The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Mark. Glory to you, Lord Christ. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lemma shavaktani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the son of God. The gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. As we remain standing, let us pray. O Lord God, who makes light shine out of darkness and who has again awakened us to praise you for your goodness and to ask for your grace. We pray now as we open your word that it may open our eyes, not only so that we may behold its marvelous wonders, but that it may open our hearts, convict us of sin, transform us, and truly make us wise unto salvation. Holy Spirit, grant us this peace and an awareness of your presence as we do so. For we know that though the grass withers and the flower fades, the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> How do I know? How do I know? It's a question that's driven philosophers, ambitious college students, and curious children throughout life. It's a question I'm sure that you've asked at, at some way and some point. Some form of this question can of course be lighthearted and something kids berate their parents to answer. They may ask, how do I know? How do you know? Why this? Why that? To which I at least know my mom would say, because I told you so, and uh, move on to the next topic. But inevitably, life gets more complex, and this question begins to take on a little bit more meaning. How do I know that I'm making the right decisions? How do I know that I'm raising my kids in the right way? How do I know that I'm loved? And how do I know that my life matters? How do I know? On a spiritual level, how do I know that God exists? How do I know that God hears me when I pray? How do I know that he's good? He never appeared to me in a burning bush or I never saw him raised from the dead, so how do I know? How do I know? Maybe for a time it seemed like these questions were relatively easy to answer. You felt the presence and faithfulness of the Lord, but then the brokenness of the world presses in. The person you thought you could trust betrays that confidence. The bills pile up. You watch a child you love seem to no longer follow the Lord, or you receive a scary diagnosis from a recent doctor's appointment, or you watch a friend suffer. All those promises of God that at one time seemed so comforting to us seem, at now, seem now at least to be some naive optimism or at the most a thing of the past unable to be held on to. If you haven't already, I hope you'll open up with me to page 10 in our Bibles um, to Genesis 15. We remind ourselves of the story so far in the drama that is the life of Abraham. In chapter 12, God issues these amazing promises to this ordinary man with a barren wife from a broken family, saying, I will bless you, I will make your name great, and through you, all families of the earth will be blessed. Well, since then, 
there's been three episodes in the life of Abraham, one bad, two good. We saw in chapter 12 where Abraham, there's a famine, he goes down to Egypt um, and he gives his wife over to Pharaoh calling her his sister so that he doesn't die. That's the bad one. (laughs) And then chapter 13 and 15, he negotiates the land with his nephew Lot and he stays in the promised land and God expands the promise to him. And then in chapter 14, he actually rescues Lot after an international conflict. So those are the good things. Seems like Abraham's beginning to get things back on track. And yet, as we turn to chapter 15, nearly a decade or so has passed and the land is still inhabited by other nations. Sarah is still barren. And Abram asks God two questions in this chapter that seem only natural at this point, surrounding the two main promises of God that seem unfulfilled. Verse two, he asked, what will you give me since I remain childless? And secondly, in verse eight, he asked, how am I to know that I am to possess this land? There it is, how do I know, Lord? He comes into this chapter wanting offspring and land, because that's what God promised him. Both questions should strike a chord with anyone who has tried to walk this life of faith. Deep down, we all want to know, how do I know? Our text today provides two of the most profound answers, I believe, to that deeply human question. Specifically, the text wants us to ask, how do I know that I'm in right relationship with God and that I can trust him? How do I know that I'm in right relationship to God and that I can trust him? First, we'll see God answer this through a peace with God from the righteousness of God. That's in our first six verses. And then we'll see a presence with God through a covenant from God. That's in the remainder of our passage. Peace and presence with God. And throughout this text, we find Abram in this space of doubt where every day, month, and year that passes, every breath of air that he breathes, he's reminded of a promise that is yet to be fulfilled, such as the the pathos, the emotional space that we find this hero, Abraham, in this text. As we come to read verse one, after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I'm your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. Listen to that sense of desperation in Abraham's voice. So far, we've yet to hear from Abraham in his interactions with God, but here we get a clearer picture of his thoughts, almost as if he's saying, hey, I I hear you, God. I, I hear you that you're a great shield and you're my reward, but here's the reality. I'm not getting any younger and Sarah is not getting any less barren. Also, the current heir of Abraham's house is this Eliezer of Damascus, who we don't really know a lot about, but he's a part of this larger entourage that came into Abraham's family after this conflict in chapter 14. But ultimately, the point being, he's, he's outside of the family. He's outside of the promise that it was originally given to Abraham's family. Abraham has to be thinking, what, what's the point in talking about a reward when I don't have anyone to pass the reward along to in my family? Is this what you had planned? Has, has your promise changed? And for the second time in four verses, the word of the Lord again comes to Abraham and reaffirms to him, verse four, it is not this man who will be your heir, but as the ESV states, your very own son shall be your heir. 
The Hebrew states here literally, the one who comes from your belly or the one who comes from your insides, he will come into your possession. Just to make the point abundantly clear, my promise has not changed. It is through you, Abraham, your seed and your specific biological descendants that all the families of the earth will be blessed. And in case you need more evidence than just the dust below your feet, come with me outside and look up to the stars, this ancient Near Eastern sky, you know, no, no light pollution at all. And be reminded of just how much I intend to bless you and multiply your offsprings. Emphasizing again that I'm going to bless you and your family more than you could ever imagine. Every time you look up and every time you look down. What follows then is a classic biblical example of a simple verse, only five words actually in Hebrew, but packed with a massive amount of importance. And that's verse six. And he believed the Lord and it was counted to him as righteousness. This verse answers the question which hangs over the whole story of the Bible. Since Genesis three in the fall in Eden, we've been asking ourselves, how can a person be put right with God and be in right relationship with him? First, we see that Abraham believes the Lord. You know, we have conceptions of belief, but this Hebrew word for belief, it's the word aman, most directly translates to something closer to, to trust or specifically to trust in something or someone. It's the first time in the entire Bible and the entire Old Testament that this word is used. Most characteristically though, the word denotes placing someone's entire reliance, one's entire self to a person, a king, a leader, or a god. And just by observing Abraham's life, we can define this word. Abraham is, is betting his life, betting his family's welfare on this promise. It's not simply, you know, that Abraham had some spiritual apprehension or some intellectual assent of some ancient deity, but that he trusted and that he had confidence that the Lord of the universe, the Lord who made all those stars, and pays attention to the detail of the dust underneath his feet. It's that God, it's that same Lord who has made this promise and will bring it to existence. And the text tells us it was that belief that was credited to him as righteousness, counted or credited or applied to him as righteousness. And once again, this word for righteousness, it has some nuance. It's the Hebrew word zedekah. It carries this idea of, of justice, righteousness, and also communal loyalty to one another. One may remember in Genesis 6, 9, Noah is referred to as a righteous man in the sense that he was a man who lived in right relationship with God, his family, and his community. Now the word is used to describe how God will respond to Abraham's trust, trust in himself. That is, he will count to him, he will credit to him a right relationship to himself, not on the basis of Abraham's doing for the Lord, but on his trusting in him. That's important. It's not on the basis of what Abraham's done in these past few chapters, no matter how heroic, but only in his trusting in him. This is of course the very core, the very heart of the central Christian doctrine of being justified by faith, what the 39 articles refer to as a most wholesome doctrine and very full of comfort. You know, often this gets framed in church discussion. A lot of ink has been spilt by the Calvins, Luthers, and our Cranmers of the world over this doctrine. It becomes a doctrine of the head. A lot of books have been written on this thing. But as we see here, this is 
deeply a doctrine of the heart. It's a wholesome doctrine, and it's meant to comfort us. Consider, for instance, how Paul picks up this reference to Abraham in Romans chapter 4, beginning at verse 23, but extending into chapter 5. Speaking of Abraham's faith, he says, but the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We always tell our college students um, in ministry that if you see a therefore in scripture, you automatically wanna ask what's it there for? So enforcing what's the context? What's going on just before this? Well, Romans 5.1 has a very big therefore, perhaps the biggest therefore in scripture. The answer is clear here. If one has been brought into right relationship with God on the basis of faith and his promises, there is a dramatic result, peace with God. Why is the Abraham story in the Bible? So that we might know how that can happen and that we know how we might know we have peace with God. The same God who counts to Abraham his own righteousness extends that same offer to you. Our right relationship with God is not meant to be calculated or dissected where we add up all the good things we do in this life. It's meant to change our hearts. The realities of this truth are meant to transform us into people who rest on grace and who rejoice in the hope and the glory of God. So this is the first answer to our original question, how do I know? And that's peace with God from the righteousness of God. Do you have peace? How do you, how do you think about peace? You know, it's easy to define peace within Tolstoy's dichotomy of war and peace, and therefore whatever's not war must be peace. But biblically, peace is defined as a right relationship with God that brings me into the presence of God. And this ultimately comes through faith, our trust in Jesus Christ. Just as God was the grounds and basis for Abraham's righteousness, so our righteousness is found entirely in Christ. As we give ourselves in faith to Jesus, he gives us the gift of his righteousness. That's true peace. That's true peace in the midst of conflict and everything else that's going on. In seasons where I've felt particularly anxious or I'm left wondering, how do I know, Lord? I have to ask myself, where have I misunderstood this teaching, this doctrine? It seems I can read Genesis 15:6 and say, Trip believed God and finished his seminary degree and it was counted to him as righteousness. Or Trip believed God and preached a really good sermon today and it was counted to him as righteousness. What might that be for you? Where are you trying to add to faith to gain your own righteousness? Brothers and sisters, this is, this is a lie that we can do so, that we are able to add to that faith to gain that righteousness. I am counted as righteous before God, and therefore I enter into a right relationship with him, and I flourish as a human being solely because of my trust in God and his ability to accomplish what he has promised, and I live, move, and have my being in light of that reality. 
And as powerful as that is for my soul and for Abraham as well, it, it seems to maybe not be enough. He needs to know a little bit more. He may know now how he can be in right relationship with God, but now he needs to know how he can trust this God. How is this God gonna bring this to fruition? So first we've seen peace with God from a righteousness of God. For the remainder of the passage, we'll find with Abraham a presence with God through a covenant from God. Abraham now wonders, returning again to the text in verse eight, how he will possess the land. For without the land, he doesn't have anywhere for his descendants to live. So Abram asks this question, how am I to know that I shall possess it? We then read of this seemingly rather bizarre ceremony with animals being split in half and birds of prey circling overhead and Abraham having to scare them off with fire pots and torches walking in the midst of the pieces. Admittedly, it's fair to read this and wonder what, what in the world is going on. We're told in verse 18 that the Lord makes, he literally cuts a covenant with Abraham. As was ancient Near Eastern practice, when two parties cut a covenant between themselves, animals were typically cut up and placed on either side, as described in our passage. The two of them, the two parties that is, perhaps a king and another king or a leader of some civilization, were to walk through this bloody scene together. A brutal reminder to both parties entering into this covenant essentially saying, if I do not keep my commitment to this covenant, let me be torn apart like these animals beside us. Let it be done to me as it's been done to these creatures. That's the curse I'm taking upon myself if I do not uphold my end of the bargain. Abraham and his early audience would have automatically recognized what's happening from verses nine to 11 as the Lord has Abraham prepare the scene. The narrative slows down the lights on the stage dim as the sun goes down and Abram enters into this deep sleep. Interestingly enough, the other deep sleep that happens in Genesis, it's in Genesis chapter two with Adam just before Eve is made. The word is unique and it should signal to us that something dramatic is about to happen, something that will change the course of human history. From verses 13 through 16, the Lord portrays this dark stretch of Israel's history, which is gonna be experienced before the promise is fulfilled. You wanna know how this is gonna happen? Here's exactly how this is gonna happen. Many centuries from now, long after you die, your family will be slaves in Egypt. I will rescue them and bring them back here and abolish the sin of those who have defiled this land. And as the passage continues to crescendo, the stage has been set for verse 17, when the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between the pieces. Throughout the Old Testament, the divine presence of Yahweh, the Lord, is often presented as this pillar of fire or a fiery bush or the fiery appearance of the Lord at Mount Sinai or a cloud in the wilderness. The message here is admittedly majestic and mysterious but it's still clear, this is Abraham's God, the presence of his God, who is passing through the pieces, this smoking fire pot and flaming torch walking in the midst of these animals. Do you grasp what's happening here? Through this covenant ceremony, the Lord communicates one of the more remarkable realities of scripture. He alone passes through the parts of the covenant agreement, communicating, let me be torn apart. Let me be crushed, 
let me be killed if I do not uphold my end of the covenant. But likewise, and further, Abraham, if you and your family do not uphold your side of the covenant, let it be done to me as it justly should have been done to you. In an extraordinary climax, we come to, as what one commentator states, to be the most profound self-humbling of God in the Old Testament, where only Yahweh, only the Lord, walks between the pieces of the creatures and enacts this self-curse as he walks through this valley of the shadow of death. It's in this image, this image, that we find the most direct answer to Abraham's question, how do I know? Throughout Israel's history, they would have to wonder, right? How is God gonna bring about these promises and how is he gonna uphold his side of the covenant? As Israel subjected to Assyria, Babylon, Persia, Rome, how is God gonna do this? We then, of course, find a man, Jesus of Nazareth, who on that Friday took upon himself the curse, took upon himself the fullest implications of the curse when he cried, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's through this image for us that God upholds his covenant and shows us the full extent of his love that he's portraying here in Genesis 15. And it's through this that he grants us presence with God. And once again, on this side of the cross, we know how true this is um, for God throughout redemptive history. Just as the Lord sees Israel's oppression in Egypt and he still passes through the pieces, the Lord and his providence will see the wilderness generation rebelling in their hearts after the Lord had rescued them. And what does he do? He still passes through. In his sovereignty, he sees the wickedness of Israel's kings and he still passes through. The Lord sees the idolatry of Israel and their subsequent exile, and yet he still passes through. The Lord sees 400 years of silence and a baby born in a stable in Bethlehem, and he still passes through. The Lord sees that hill outside of Jerusalem on that road with scoffers on either side, and he still passes through. And that same reality extends to us. Christ sees your sin, that shameful thought, that ever-present pride, Christ sees that unkind word. Christ sees that broken family. Christ sees that sinful past, that sinful present, that sinful future, and he still passes through. This is the fullest implications of what it means to be justified by faith, of how we are drawn into a right relationship with him, of how we are confident he is present with us. We are able to trust because God has proven himself as trustworthy. God passes through the pieces in Abraham's place. And likewise, Christ bears the weight of that curse in our place. Two options remain. To rest on that savior, on that peace, on that God who goes before us in our darkness, or to reject it. My plea to you, whether you know the Lord or not, is to rest on that one source of peace and presence with God that you will run for the rest of your life trying to find otherwise. So as we return to the question the passage places upon us, it's the question of faith. How do I know? We've made the point that it's the peace with God from a righteousness of God that is a right relationship with him and then a presence with God through a covenant from God. Here we find our heavenly father 
being so aware of our nature, speaking to the actual needs of the human heart. Abraham comes into chapter 15 wanting offspring and land for them to live in. And the Lord tells him exactly how that's gonna happen. But there's a deeper need in Abraham's heart. It's as if God is asking him, what if you had all this? What if you had everything you've been promised, but you don't have me? What if you have the land and Sarah miraculously becomes pregnant, but you aren't in right relationship with me? Abraham leaves this interaction believing not only in the promises of God, but more importantly, being confident in the peace and presence from God. I challenge you with that same thought as you enter your weeks. What if you got everything you want? The wayward child comes home, you get that promotion, you land that secure job, you name it, but you don't have peace with God. You get that relationship you've desperately wanted, you have someone now you can share your life with. You get to take that vacation you've always wanted to take to that one place you've always wanted to go to, but your soul is alone without a knowledge that God is not only with you in those dark places, but that he goes before you. God may be saying to you, what if you had all those things, but you don't have me? C.S. Lewis came to a similar realization at the end of his life in his novel, Till We Have Faces. After decades of skepticism, he just says this on his last page. I know now, Lord, why you uttered no answer. You are yourself the answer. And before your face, questions die away. What other answer would suffice? Often in our questions and doubt, we want a clear answer, a formula, a system to plug into the calculator of life that will give us a clean answer. But rather than a formula, God gives us a person. He gives us him, his very self. And in giving us himself, he grants us access to a relationship with him on the basis of faith, which gives us peace with God. And that peace with God enables us to enter into his presence in a relationship with him Peace and presence with God is what the human heart needs and what God gives to Abraham and to us in Christ. Let us pray. Most gracious Lord, we're so thankful for your word, how it is able to pierce bone and marrow and get down to our hearts. We're grateful for this life and example of Abraham, of how we are brought into right relationship with you solely on our faith and that you have upholded your side of the covenant in Christ, claiming victory over the grave and inviting us into life with him. We pray now we enter, as we enter into that peace and presence that you may go before us in our weeks. Love you and pray all these things in your son's name, amen.